Hey everyone, welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey. It's another weekend show, which means it's time for our potpourri episode of this week. And of course, there's plenty to talk about in a tumultuous week in Devil's Land. But before we get to all that, I'd like to introduce my co-host as always, John Fisher. How are you, John? I am doing okay. I wish I could say the same for the performances of the New Jersey Devils defense, but it is what it is. <laughs> and because it's the weekend, we want to unwind a little bit. And you mentioned the performance of the New Jersey Devils defense. I'd venture, I'd venture out to say that it was uh, pretty pointless. So that inspired today's game uh, of which devil is less pointless. Now, the way this game works is I'm going to give you two names. And you're going to tell me which person got more points as a member of the New Jersey Devils during their tenure here. Ah. Uh, now, I specifically picked pairs of names that were within five points of each other. So it's not going to be an easy game. However, no. it may be a little bit surprising that they are within five points of each other. And you have to tell me who has more. Okay. I've got five pairs of names here. They, uh, they mostly span eras of devil's hockey from the 2000s and 90s but there are some other names thrown in there uh there are no current players just because i wasn't sure if the stats were fully updated so just okay. wanted to make sure that we had the most accurate numbers possible are you ready john which devil is less pointless well i want to clarify to the listeners the people who matter that uh i am indeed not looking at any reference sites i'm not going to be typing anything i'm not going to look anything up i'm going to do this on the honor system and i'll probably do a lot worse because this is going to be difficult <laughs> yeah so uh, enough with the identification stuff clearly clearly you've dominated that task so i wanted to give you a little bit of a more of a toss-up game to kind of test your metal a little bit so are you ready okay. for the first pair of names who is the first pair? Which devil is less pointless between Colin White and Vyacheslav Fetisov? I think it's pronounced Vashlev. It's a Vyacheslav. Then I do not know how to pronounce that first name then. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as a person who speaks fluent Russian, Vyacheslav. Okay. I've, I've learned how to pronounce his name. <laughs> I want to say... I'm going to say Colin White. Colin White has produced one or had produced 125 points as a Devils defenseman. Vyacheslav Fetisov comes in at 130. You are incorrect on the first question oh. by a small margin, as they all are. But Fetisov has the edge on White by just a little bit. Okay. Now here's I thought I, I thought since White played a very long time with mm -hmm. his team. He'd have that edge, but apparently not. So. Yeah, it was it was all about the actual production. Now, I purposely got a lot of players that had a long tenure with New Jersey just to uh, confuse <laughs> just a little bit and befuddle you. Yeah. So it seems my ploy has worked for at least the first question. Now, this next one, you would not expect such a close comparison, but I've got the names Mike Camilleri versus Alex McGilney. Ooh. <laughs> Now, that's a that's a tough one because Mogilny did not play very long in New Jersey. Well, he However, did have two stints. He did. Oh, that's right. He did. That is a very important point. I forgot about the second stint. Um, I know Mogilny had the 43-goal season. And when Camilleri was on the Devils, the Devils hit rock bottom, even though this season is starting to make a good argument <laughs> against what rock bottom is. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go with Mogilny. 
McGilney had 114 points in 121 games as a New Jersey Devil. Mike Camilleri had 111 in 171 games. So, 50 more games for Camilleri and three less points. You are correct on this one. All right. And I just want to point out, step back to the Colin White-Fatisov comparison. I mentioned that Colin White had 125 points and Fatisov had 130. Colin White also played 300, 402 more games as a New Jersey Devil. Yeah, I figured he'd pick up a couple cheapies uh, in terms of assists <laughs> along the way, but apparently not. Not enough, yeah. No. So here's another fun one. We have Sergei Nemchinov faced up against Adam Larson. Did you know that Sergei Nemchinov, I believe, was the first NHL player to play for both, all three local teams, the Devils, our hated rivals, and the Islanders? Oh, yeah. He um, he famously was that because it hadn't it didn't happen for a while. after. Or no, Mike Dunham did it as well. And Aaron Asham, I believe, Aaron, also did it. Yep, Aaron Asham and – oh. Well, there's another name on this list that came close, but not quite there. So I'm going to give okay. you Nemchinov versus Larson. All right. They're one point apart. Oh, goodness. <laughs> you know, Nemchinov wasn't that good of a player. But then again, mm-hmm. <laughs> Adam Adam Larson also did not meet his potential. Now, this is Sergei I'm... Nemchinov center from 98 to 2002. And Adam Larson defenseman from 2011 to 2016, one point yeah. apart. One point apart. I'm going to guess Larson. It is Nimchinov with 70, and Larson coming in with a nice 69 points during his time as a New Jersey Devil. Did you know that he has been not good in Edmonton? Well, honestly, I haven't been paying much attention to how Adam Larson's been doing, because uh, now that memory is going to make me too sad. Fair. (laughs) All right, so, so far you are one for three, but this is a very tough game. I will admit that to you. Yeah, this is not not easy. (laughs) Our next next (laughs) pair of names, which is one that I very much enjoyed. It is Joe Neuendijk versus Jacob Josephson. Oh. (laughs) I remember dropping my phone in surprise when somebody called me up and be like, hey, did you know the Devils treated Jason Arnott? I'm like, what? (laughs) Now, granted, the real prize in that trade was Jamie Langenbrunner. Right. It wasn't Joe Newendike. Future but captain Newen... and cup winners. Uh, yeah. Jamie Langenbrunner, he... Joe Newendike. For yeah, but... Arnott McKay, I believe, right? Yes, McKay also went in that deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember if there was a pick involved as well. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, goodness. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess Newendike because Yosasin was very frustrating to watch at times because he just would not shoot from the slot at times. I think Patrick Elias wanted to, like, put him in a headlock sometimes because of that. <laughs> uh, but uh, my choice is going to be the veteran, Newendike. Okay, with the 182-game gap between Jacob Josephson and Joe Newendike as New Jersey Devils, Jacob Josephson accrued four more points, 60 total to Newendike's 56 as a Devil. Oh, so that's one for four. But again, these are very tricky for that exact reason. Yeah. And uh, the last pairing, which I so enjoy because both of these players are much better known for not being devils or for being uh, more famously part of bigger things. We got Tom Curvers versus Yaramir Yager. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Yager led the team in scoring in his first season with the Devils. Did you know that? Oh, I sure did. And it was the third or fourth franchise that he led in scoring at least once. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. And Tom Curvers was most famous for being worth an, well, they didn't do protection back then. There was no lottery in 1991. Right. Uh, Obviously became Scott Niedemeyer. Right. 
So in his 131 games as a defenseman for the New Jersey Devils, did he accrue more points than two and a half seasons of Yarmir Yager? Right. The thing is that Kerver played in the 80s, and his his uh, get name, you know, his what he's known for, I guess, was that he was an offensive defenseman, mm-hmm. and so higher scoring era. And the Devils as a whole were a much more high-scoring team, even though Yager is, you know, Yarmir Yager, he was also 41 and 42, respectively. That being said, I'm going to pick Yager because who can say no to Yager? Oh, John, you almost logicked it out, but Tom Kerber's oh. got 100 points as a, as a New Jersey Devil before, of course, being famously traded for the pick that became Scott Niedermeyer from the Toronto Maple Leafs. And Yaramir Yager accrued 96 before the deadline deal that sent him to the Florida Panthers. <laughs> so one yeah. for five, a tougher result than last time, but... Yep. Isn't it interesting how you look at the different eras of New Jersey and all of these pairings were within five points of each other with Nimchinov and Larson being off by one? Well, it, it not only speaks to that, it also speaks to the different roles that players served. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, Larson is a very good example of this. He wasn't – when he was drafted, it was thinking, oh, he could do everything. But it was quickly apparent that, no, you didn't want him on a power play. He would have good forwards in front of him. Occasionally, once in a while, he'll make a great breakout pass, but – for the most part, he was not going to get it done. This is where a guy like Damon Severson shown in, in light of Larson <laughs> in the fact that say what you want about Severson and his uh, miscues at times, but at least he can score a goal or create a play to make up for that. Whereas with Larson, if he makes a mistake, well, you're just going to kind of have to eat it. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. So the, the last thing I wanted to point out, I was talking about the game disparities, which led to some interesting discussions on the points. These last two actually had, uh, 131 and 139 games for Curvers and Yager, respectively. So an eight-game difference, Curvers managed to accrue four more points. Yeah. So there you go. That's which devil is less pointless. And our answers today are Fetisov, McGilney, Nimchinov, Josephson, and Curvers. Yep. I hope that's you a powerful that five, That's a powerful group of five. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I, I guess it's a weird way to put those names in common but we found a way to do it so there you go that's the latest game we have on game show saturday and let's launch into more of the widespread potpourri stuff how about that good deal all right awesome so obviously we're going to start with the biggest news and we talked about it in the last episode but ray shiro got fired we gave him a bit of his due last time in talking about how he's completely turned over the roster they're in a much better position to do a rebuild now they have pieces to build around as opposed to back when he took over the team the obvious question that happens here and i know i've been seeing a lot of speculation and a lot of anxiety from people who is going to be the next person to take this rapidly sinking ship and try to steer it out of the i'm i'm done with this metaphor who's going to turn this team around as the next devil's gm and only the third one in the last what 30 years yeah i mean it's a position where um yeah it's not the greatest situation but at the same time if you can make it happen hey that's a big feather in your cap Mm -hmm. and so obviously a lot of names i've been floating around the most likely, I'd say, or maybe not the most likely, but the easiest hire would be Tom Fitzgerald, who is doing right. the job on an interim basis now. Like we said, he's interviewed for other positions before, uh, mm-hmm. other GM positions, and he 
seems to have a pulse on how the organization is run, not just the NHL one, but the AHL team that he helped construct. So besides Fitzgerald, what are some names that you've seen kind of floating around out there that would intrigue you as the potential next Devils GM? Right. So there have been a number of articles uh, put out there, a number of people speculating, guys like Chris Ryan at NJ.com. There was an article at the Hockey Writers throwing out some names. Uh, we actually got a tweet from Damian Shaw asking whether or not we think Mark Hunter is an op- is, is an option. And with the fact that the Devils are going to apparently put out a formal search, which is usually either through a consultant or through somebody who's going to lead the, the process, so to speak, it can go in a lot of different directions. So just some common names I've seen, uh, in addition to Fitzgerald, uh, Dan McKinnon, who apparently was promoted to assistant GM. So apparently Dan was originally working with Rachel Derry and Kate Madigan as part of video slash analytics. Well, Rachel was let go. Dan and Kate obviously obviously stuck around. Kate's more on the video side. And Dan has been sort of moving up the chain, so to speak, Mm -hmm. as an analyst and now as an assistant GM. So if they're really big on having a really different voice, a really different uh, approach, but at the same time want to keep things internal, there's an option right there. Um, There have been some names, you know, Mike Gillis definitely had issues in Vancouver. However, He's widely regarded as a forward thinker and, and, and compared to most other hockey executives, not just in terms of analytics, but also in terms of player management, in terms of how they see the game going forward. Since man, since ownership had made a big deal about wanting a new direction, he's a great idea for a new direction. The aforementioned Mark Hunter might be somebody you want to talk to. I would imagine there's going to be a lot of assistant GMs that are going to be brought up in the search so toronto has a number of them columbus has a number of them mm, bill that, zito uh, mentioned specifically thank you. yeah bill zito he's he's one and then there's um in addition to mark hunter there's somebody else in toronto i apologize for not having the names off the tip of my tongue here because with this, this is the sort of thing that's like more quote-unquote inside baseball than anything else mm-hmm. like this is something that isn't necessarily public and it's really hard to get a handle on Who's doing a good job as an assistant GM? Because typically if they're going to get a lot of notice, a lot of publicity, it's either because they did something bad or they're about to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I understand, you know, Tom Fitzgerald has done a lot of uh, quote unquote media work with the MSG broadcast, cu- giving updates on Binghamton, being an option to speak uh, in between games when obviously Mr. Shera wasn't available and nobody else was representing the organization at the moment. Um, but at the same time, Fitzgerald was also not so uh, subtly putting his name out there for a GM job. He nearly got the Minnesota job. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that kind of has to happen. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where I don't want to use the phrase here because I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, but the quote unquote old boys network. Well, guess what? You know, you have to network. Mm-hmm. And as such, it's not something that you and I can easily hear a name and just go, oh, yeah, I want him or oh, no, I don't want him. And unfortunately, whether you like it or not, as much as I believe in analytics and all this stuff, part of the GM's role is how do you handle other personalities both in your organization and outside your organization for trades and other, you know, other agents, uh, free agents that you may have to go out and sign. So how you handle personnel and how you network is a big part of this. And that's just a world that's really outside of our uh, so supposed worry boxes fans. Yeah. So you mentioned the old GM's club, which is basically the concept that, you know, these hockey people bounce around from team to team. But there's also a bit of a movement towards the young GM's club, which is why this 
entire search gets a little bit more confusing. It just depends on what the owners are looking for in terms of the next person. Do they want someone who's you know well-established, has a long resume of hockey general management, or is this more going to be someone like the route that Toronto and Arizona took in hiring young analytical minds like Kyle Dubas and John Chayka? It, right. It's unclear, but again, before they were hired, not a lot of people they were they weren't on a, a ton of people's radar. Obviously, people close to the organization and more involved in the sport knew of them and knew their breadth of work. So when their names are finally announced, they can give a little bit of information. But more often than not, guys like that won't really get mentioned as potential next candidates because no one really thinks of them. And so that leads to my next question. And it has to do with some of the news we've been learning about what exactly happened between ownership and Ray Shiro that made oh, yeah. the relationship go sour. And you mentioned analytics. Now, the theory is that two um, analysts were hired to report directly to the owners, and uh, Ray Shiro was not a huge fan of that because he liked to keep things within his inner circle. So right. my question to you, John, does that mean that the ownership will go more in an old boys or new boys direction with their GM, given what they had with Ray Shiro? Or would they be fine hiring someone who was open-minded into analytics either way? Is that less likely with someone who's been around the league a bunch of times and has kind of done it their way? Well, I want to take a step back first and, and point out that, you know, this is not 2010 anymore, where, you know, most of the league was just sort of eschewing analytics or eschewing analysis, or at the very least, if they were doing it, they were totally keeping it under wraps. I mean, pretty much every NHL organization has an analytics person. In fact, this is true in all of sports, like MLS teams have them, college teams have them. There are analysts up and down the networks in baseball and football. So, I mean, you know, the, the question really isn't so much, you know, was, is Cheryl really an analytics person? I think it goes a lot more simpler, as you point out, is that ownership hired two people that were reporting to them, hey, this is how things are going, instead of going, hey, Ray Cheryl, how are things going? Right. You know, it, it's it's a classic, you know, power struggle. And I think after what happened in 2018-19, which, yes, there were lots of injuries, but that team was not good and not going in a good place even before all those injuries. So, I, I get the impression that ownership was uh, losing a lot of faith in Shero, and they figured, okay, if he can manage to make some big moves, get this team back on the right foot, keep Taylor Hall, fine. But but as a plan B, we're going to have these two people outside of you tell us how things are really going. So this way we're not getting what your version of, of the events are. We're going to get a, a second opinion reporting directly to us. Mm -hmm. So going back to the actual question, I think ownership – is at a minimum going to mandate that whoever the next GM is, is that they're going to have to work with Tyler Dello and Matt Kane. So unless ownership has a change of heart and wants to get rid of Dello and Kane, they're going to have to work with them. Mm -hmm. Simple as. Now, the big concern is going to be who's available because it's easy to say, you know, go out and get a fresh young face or get somebody who's never been a GM before. And I'll just throw this name out there because he's been making waves in Carolina from an analytical standpoint for a very long time, uh, Eric Tolsky. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the big concern is being a GM is more than just analyzing how your team performs and making decisions based off that. It, there's also the human element of dealing with player agents, young players, veteran players, being able to interact with other GMs, being able to interact with the media, and most importantly, handling ownership because right. <laughs> they're your bosses. It's like any other job. You know, you have to manage your manager, so to speak. And a guy like Josh Harris, you know, you know, he's super rich, has a lot of different sports teams and other business ventures. So you 
do not try. If he has to come calling you about what's going on, it's probably not a good sign. Right. So to that end, it's it's a risk. And we've also seen examples of GMs and even coaches where they fail miserably in one spot, but they go somewhere else and they do a great job, or at least they do a great job for several years. And it makes you go, oh, I don't know why this guy was fired to begin with. Seems like a stupid idea, which perpetuates the idea of recycling all these different names, because the truth of the matter is this is a very odd skill set to have where experience can be a real asset if only be, if only if only from just learning from your own mistakes. So I get the impression that if we were to make this decision right now, Harris would probably take the risk on somebody newer just to have that quote unquote new direction going forward. I can't, I think Tom Fitzgerald wouldn't be a bad choice if it wasn't for the fact that he's been Ray Sherrill's guy for so many years. And again, since ownership has made it clear they want a new direction, they got rid of Ray Sherrill. I can't imagine they're going to just say, well, we'll just keep Tom, you know, Tom Fitzgerald, the guy who pretty much talks to Ray, still is best friends with Ray. And wants presumably wants to do things like Ray Shero. So unless they really like Tom Fitzgerald more than dealing with Ray Shero, he's out. And I think they'll go with a, a newer, a new voice and with hopefully a new set of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask specifically because we are familiar with these owners in that they own the Philadelphia 76ers as well. So I want to ask you, how much of this need to kind of get the rebuild more accelerated, need to turn things around comes from the fact that they waited out this long long process in philadelphia already the this long long process they saw how it developed on their basketball team there's a lot of mediocrity going there before the sixers they're Mm -hmm. not even i I wouldn't say they're even in the top tier echelon of competitors from basketball perspective but this is a hockey podcast so how much does that does going through the process one time with one of their teams lead to this kind of i guess i'll say anxiety about watching the devils perform and making sure that they compete sooner rather than later. I think it's kind of an apples and oranges comparison, Dan, mm-hmm. because in the NBA, okay, let me take a step back here. The The general knowledge of the NBA, the general perception is that you need two and a half superstars to be a successful contender in the NBA. Now, whether or not that's actually true anymore is up for debate. And typically, if you want to get the aforementioned superstars, the easiest and cheapest way to get them is to draft them. And typically, they're at the top of the draft. So even though there's a lottery in the NBA, and there has been a lottery for since the mid-80s, you know, your best chances of getting those top-tier players, those top-tier prospects, is to be as bad as possible and accrue picks and hope you win the lottery or hope that being fourth or fifth in the draft will get you that top-tier player. Because you're probably not going to find it drafting 17th or 18th overall every year and, and losing in the first round every other year because you just you're just not good enough to swim with the big with the big fish. But you're just being better than the small fish, so to speak. So as a result, in the NBA, a lot of teams are basically either feasting or fam or in famine and being in the middle range is not that helpful. Whereas in hockey, however, you can get lucky if you're in that middle range like you know, the L.A. Kings of 2012, their regular season had some real issues, but they got hot by the season's end and they went through the whole Western Conference like a buzzsaw. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't win the Western Conference in the regular season, but they absolutely won the Western Conference on, on their way to the Stanley Cup that year. Oh, yeah. They got so, in because of a I think it was a game against Columbus where they scored a goal, I think, either as time expired or 
right before time expired, Columbus had scored one, and yeah, exactly. It was within seconds of them not even making it. Right, exactly. My point is that in hockey, it's possible, and there's even some recent examples of, you know, you can be a quote unquote mediocre team. And you could still go out there and win a playoff round. You can go out there and make it to the conference finals. You could be, quote unquote, one play away from a Stanley Cup appearance like Ottawa a couple years back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to that end, you don't necessarily need to burn everything to the ground and hope you get that first overall pick and make and then therefore build your team around that. On top of that, consider that in the NBA, when you draft a guy, you have to play them right away. In the NHL, you're not drafting guys necessarily to have them play right away. You can wait. And the expectation is that even with guys who jump into the NHL right away, like, I don't know, Nico Heischer, Jack Hughes, is that you're not going to get the best versions of them right away. It's going to take a couple years. Very rarely are you going to get the Alex Ovechkin or the Sidney Crosby or the Connor McDavid where they, right out of the box, are an all-star. More likely, it's going to be more like Austin Matthews or Jack Eichel, where it's going to take a couple of years. But in those couple of years, you're going to go, oh, my goodness, this guy's amazing. And of course, just because they're amazing does not necessarily mean your team is going to be amazing because of the nature of how hockey is compared to basketball. So <laughs> this is a very long winded answer to say that, you know, I, I get it if you're concerned that, you know, you're are you going to see the Devils just eat dirt for the next five more years and hope that at the end of all this, the Devils will be a good team, just kind of like how the Sixes are. I get the concerns, but I think between how the sports, how they're structured, how they're drafted, how they're built, and how they can succeed, I really think that um, I really don't, I just don't see it. I think if the Devils are doing this again, like, you know, the next GM's not going to have five seasons to work with. It'll be closer to like two or three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll just go, yeah, of course, they, they failed miserably. Let's move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. And part of that change that needs to happen is to get a new coach. And we've talked about candidates in the past as well. But I want to just talk about one that dropped into contention as of this week in a weird change made by the Vegas Golden Knights. I guess (laughs) there was more going on there because, you know, I don't want to knock it entirely just because, yes, they are three points out of first place. Yes, they are close to the top of the league in every five on five metric that exists and they have been for a while they've been regressing a little bit under Gerard Gallant but did he deserve to get fired I don't know what's going on behind the scenes but even a successful team can shake things up to uh, you know an extent that actually helps them continue competing we've seen that with our own New Jersey Devils when Robbie Fatorik got fired in 2000 a couple weeks right before the playoffs so whatever the reason for this change Gerard Gallant is now available as a coach is he someone Mm -hmm. that you'd want to see behind the bench in New Jersey absolutely I understand that you know his departure from Florida and that involved a whole that was part of a larger mess between ownership and the general manager and analytics somewhat similar to what the Devils kind of have right now but at the same time you know, Gallant may not say, oh, I'm a super big analytics guy, but his teams in Vegas were very good analytically. And I'll take the guy who gets the teams to perform well rather than the guy who says, well, I believe in how they perform well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, give me the results. You don't have to give me the verbiage. No, Gallant has been very good with uh, turning teams that were – you don't know what they were going to expect. Maybe they have some talented players, but they have some uh, some retreads. 
some players that maybe just weren't very good and, and, you know, managed to get the most out of them. That was the case with his time in Florida. That was the case, obviously, in Vegas. I think Vegas made a very big mistake dumping him. Uh, as you said, Dan, there's got to be something more going on because the team is literally within a couple points of leading the Pacific Division. I understand it's not safe there, but, you know, this is what season number three of the franchise's existence and yeah. you're still fighting for the division title. Right. I think he's doing something pretty well. So I don't believe this is really performance based. I honestly think some something must have failed in that relationship between either the GM and the coach or ownership and the coach or something. Maybe the players are threatening a mutiny, uh, which is what happened to Claude Julian back last decade to the Devils. That being said, yes, the Devils need to call this man and th- they have to inquire. I mean, the hard the, the, the obstacles here, Dan, are one, is Gallant really going to want to come to New Jersey at all? I imagine he's going to be a very popular name uh, this offseason. I imagine, you know, he's got ties to Steve Yeiserman. He's got ties to Detroit. So that could be an attractive job offer for him, turn that team or help turn that team around. I'm sure if Montreal fires their head coach, Montreal will definitely come by and offer a ton of money for Gallant to uh, come back or not come back, but come to their team. Uh, but the Devils at least have to call him. The other obstacle, of course, is the fact that the Devils don't have a GM right now. They have an interim GM. And unless Josh Harris and David Blitzer say to any other GM candidates, you're not going to pick this coach because Gerard Gallant's going to be the coach and you're just going to have to deal with it, which I can't imagine is going to go over very well in interviewing GMs. Right. Because typically GMs want to hire their coach and, and, their, and you know have a say in the coaching staff. That being said, unless ownership mandates it or ownership says, hey, Fitzgerald, if you got to get make this guy the coach, make him the coach and we'll figure out the money later on if the new GM doesn't like him. I think that's really the big hindrance. Yeah, they got to call it a lot because he's been performing very well recently. I think his firing was undeserved and I think the Devils will be a much better team with him because what this season is showing is that when you do not have good coaching, especially on defense, you're going to perform a lot worse than what your talent level suggests you are and – Oh, it can be ugly. It can be very, very ugly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, it has been a horrendous scene. And just following some of that, just ending up in our last discussion point of the day here, I wanted to, you know, whoever is next in charge is going to have to make some tough decisions. And also one of those decisions involves a very, very, very important draft coming up, given the state of the team and given the fact that they have two first-rounders in this draft, potentially. Yes. So, oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. So I, wanna, I, I wanted to take some time to focus on the top picks, the top prospects for the 2020 draft because, yes, the Devils are going to pick in the top 10. And there are 11 guys here that you should be very excited about. Granted, some are better than others, and I'm just going to run down them, you know, in a little bit, Dan. But, uh, you know, this is very similar to last year's draft, where if you were picking in the top 10 or even in the top 15 in last last year's draft, you were going to get a very good prospect. And I think that's going to be the same case this year. But to your point, Dan, this the Devils are going to have a high pick, and they should get that one right. And if they can make the Arizona pick correct or turn that into a 
a quote unquote win now asset, uh, you know, yeah. go forth and make it happen because this is a solid first round and the top 10, 11 guys projected for this draft are guys that you should be very excited about. So, well, I just want to point out also in all likelihood, the devils are going to be somewhere in the top seven, even yeah. with the lottery results, just given where they are now, they could conceivably pass some teams if they keep winning weird games against really good teams and those teams out west your la your anaheim keep dropping off but i feel like the range we're going for mostly this year is going to be anywhere from like four to eight yeah and and right now we're just after the world junior championships the canadian hockey league just had their top prospects game so we're getting into the second half of not only the nhl season but also for all these junior leagues and european leagues so this is going to be a big opportunity for a lot of guys to bump their stock up get their uh, teams going in terms of for their playoff runs so to speak and show off that they're not just uh, that they're developing throughout the season they're not just you see me in october i'm the same guy six months later i Go out there and show that you've improved. Show, go out there and show that you've worked on your game. Go off and show that uh, you could be a future NHLer. So because of that, there's a lot of variety between various different scouts, whether they're guys like Steve Kurianos, Will Scouch, Sam Costanica, uh, Craig Button put out his usually controversial list. Uh, different services like Future Considerations and HockeyProspect.com just came out with recent lists. So I want to get every you know Devils fans more aware of not just the top guys, but those four to eight range guys that uh, I think fans are going to you know be talking up in May and June because guess what, they're very good players. Mm -hmm. They could they could be future Devils next season. And these considerations for four to eight are based on a couple things. It's based on all those scouting reports you just mentioned, but also there's a consideration for what the Devils will actually need in that spot. Yes, so absolutely. You'll make so, sure to mention that as well. Absolutely. So first and foremost, let's say the Devils win the lottery again. Woo! They're gonna get. They're going to get Alexis Lafreniere, and in a way, Lafreniere would almost be the perfect pick for the Devils because. He is a high-scoring, high-energy, high-physical, high-two-way left winger from the Ramuski Oceanic. Mm -hmm. Now, you may not notice this, Dan, but the Devils kind of have a big hole at left wing now. I wonder why that happened. Exactly. Could you imagine having a French-Canadian 18-year-old who just won MVP at the World Junior Championships step in next season to fill that hole? Well, let me tell you, it would help a lot of people get over Taylor Hall a lot faster. It would. But the, the Devils are going to have to win the lottery for that to happen. Yeah, not easy. You know, not Well, it's also very unlikely. Well, Detroit's going to just dominate those odds, so... <laughs> yeah, de yeah, Detroit is Detroit's guaranteed to be picking one through four at this point. Anyway, let's say the Devils win the second lottery, and they pick second overall. They are going to draft Quinton Byfield. Mm -hmm. And unlike a lot of the other guys I'm going to talk about, Quinton Byfield is the biggest skater of the bunch. He's six foot four, 215 pounds, strong as an ox, built like a brick house. Excellent blend of power and skill. He is by far the guy who's going to be the hot OHLer of the draft. I've already seen some comparisons saying he kind of reminds people of Jenny Malkin. <laughs> and I don't know about you. I understand the devils have needs outside of center, but if you have the option of getting a guy who might be, like of Jenny Malkin, you run to the podium and draft Quentin Byfield. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Exactly. So right now, those are your top two guys for this. It, it's basically Lafreniere, Byfield, 
And then we're getting to the group of players that the Devils will probably have to draft from, which is still very, very good. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about the two positions that Devil fans are probably going to scream about just based on their position alone. First and foremost, defensemen. Uh, there's basically only one top 10 worthy defenseman for this draft class, and it's Jamie Drysdale of the Erie Otters. Drysdale made the Canadian World Junior roster as a 17-year-old, which is, first and foremost, not a not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Doing so on that defense with Ty Smith, uh, Jared uh, Br- uh, Becker-Denard, I'm sorry, um, Bowen Byram, and a whole bunch of other and veterans. Kevin Ball, like Kevin, don't forget. Of course, Ke- yeah, I can't forget about Kevin Ball. Our good friend. Uh, yeah, but Drysdale went from very limited minutes as a seventh defenseman to playing more significantly in the medal games. He skates very well. He's got a great offensive skill set. He reminds people of Bowen Byram already, even though Bowen Byram is literally just a couple years older than him. He's a right-handed defenseman. Again, if the Devils are picking in that four to eight range, it's going to be hard to pass up on Drysdale. Now, the thing is, is that he is the top 10 defenseman of this draft class. The other defensemen in this draft class, they're good, but they're not at that high level. It's not going to be like last, the last couple of years where, you know, you're going to see like, you know, Moritz Cedar just jump to be sixth overall. Or, you know, you're going to see Kale McCarr make a, make a big run for the top three or something like that. Or Bowen Byram, the aforementioned Bowen Byram. So basically, if you're thinking defenseman, Drysdale is your opportunity. And if you don't want a right-handed defenseman for some reason, well, you're just not going to pick a defenseman in the top 10. Anyway, that's the first positional-based player that I think Devil fans are going to be very interested in. The other one is a goaltender. Oh. And now here's the thing, Dan. For years, years as a hockey blogger, I've seen for years. uh, I've been doing this for 12 years. And every year I see and read the same thing. You should never draft a goaltender high. However, there is one goaltender prospect that you should consider drafting high. However, this is the first year where I haven't seen the qualifier of however you should consider it's this guy will be a top 10 draft pick. Yeah. Like straight up. It's Yaroslav Askarov with Ska St. Petersburg or more appropriately Ska Neva St. Petersburg, their VHL team. He is a 17 year old six foot three goaltender. He had his first stumbling block at the world junior championships where he was uh, not very good with the glove, kind of had some struggles in the net. But again, he's a 17-year-old in an under-20 tournament. Every other tournament he's played at, at his age level and in the Russian VHL and even in his one KHL appearance already. He's 17 and had a KHL appearance with Scott St. Petersburg. He has performed excellently. This is a guy who has tons of potential as a goaltender. And if you think he's the Russian carry price, you can make that. you can justify that top 10 pick. That's the th- that's the, always the big concern with goaltending, Dan, is that if you hit, you're going to hit big. It's going to be wonderful. But if you miss, you're going to if you thought devil fans are salty about Pavel Zaka being drafted in 2015, mm-hmm. a bust goaltender in the top 10 would just dwarf that. People would not be complaining about Pavel Zaka anymore. It would just be like, oh, my goodness, why would you draft a goaltender this high? Never again. Yeah. You know? and, and, but this is the guy that if you're going to bet on. This is the guy you want to bet on. It's a weird it's a weird thing because it's such an important position. Like it's undoubtedly the a big difference between teams that are actually competing for something and teams that are left in the dust. And year after year we hear, like you said, that same conversation. Spencer Knight had that same buzz last year, maybe not top five, but definitely as an early first rounder because he was just that good. And then famously the number one overall of the vaunted 2003 draft that we all talk about was Marc-Andre Fleury, who 
you know, three cups and two other finals appearances later, yeah, he seems like he was worth that expenditure. So if Askarov is anywhere near that universe, it would be a good and worthy pickup for the Devils. Right. But again, it's a risky pick. And if you start having doubts about Askarov, you know, let's say he doesn't have a good second half of the season or he doesn't have a good world under 18 tournament, assuming he goes to the world under 18 tournament, then you could start raising questions of maybe that you may want to pass. And again, with the way that goaltending is working out, this guy is the not only the only top 10 goaltender, uh, he's also the only goaltender that could go in the first round. A lot of the other goaltending prospects are already projected to be mid to late second rounders at best and oftentimes lower than that, which is pretty common for most goaltending prospects it's so kind of weirdly like in terms of draft value it kind of feels like a running back in the nfl like you yes. never know where you can find a truly truly special one but if you're being told that listen you don't usually try to expend a first round pick on a goaltender and this is the guy to do it on it feels like one of those special running backs now in terms of actually impacting the game there's a crater of difference between the two positions of but course yeah it does feel like that from a positional perspective yes now the devils could also use an offensive forward in their prospect pool like i understand the big concerns right now because right now the defense does not look good and obviously goaltending is a big question mark after Mackenzie blackwood and even that Mackenzie Blackwood is kind of a question mark. Not a big question mark, but a question mark nonetheless. Hopefully one that will be answered with the next couple months. But the Devils don't really have a surefire future offensive forward. Granted, Jack Hughes is already in the NHL. Mm -hmm. Granted, Nico Heischer is in his third season. So, I mean, you know, those guys already are in. So, let's be real, Dan. You can never have enough scoring talent. You can never have enough offensive forwards. Mm -hmm. And there is a plethora of them for this four to eight range that the Devils could be picking in. So I'm going to quickly touch on them because there's a bunch. And I, again, get get used to hearing these names more and more as the season goes on because you're going to get hyped for them. All right. First and foremost is probably the most obscure one is Tim Stutzla. Mm -hmm. He is a German. He plays for Adler Mannheim in the German League. He is 18 years old and has a point per game rate in a German professional league. Now, granted, the German professional league is not super great, but it's still point per game in a men's league from an 18 year old. Very fast, very quick on the puck. He is a big reason why the German team made it to the top tier of the World Junior Championships this year. They went to the relegation round because they were in the toughest, the tougher group. Uh, they survived against Kazakhstan in the relegation round. They're going to do they're going to do some good business next year. Uh, when it's in Edmonton in an easier group. And, hey, they could even be a surprise team in this quarter and maybe even the semifinals. But Stutzla is really quick if you're looking for a forward. He's, Speaking of... He's also looking to follow up in the, before you get to that, the footsteps of Mord Cedar uh, in terms of being a German drafted in the top 10, which is not something absolutely. we've seen very often at all. Just no. speaks to how far their program has come. Exactly. And this is this draft class is a coming out party, not just for Stutzla, but also in a couple other German guys like J.J. Paterka, who also impressed people at the World Junior Championships. He could be a late first rounder. Could be if you're really if, if Arizona goes deep, could be the Arizona pick. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving on to Finland, a place where the Devils have never successfully drafted a player from is a guy <laughs> who has been uh, very successful early on in his career. Anton Lundell, he was the only guy on this list who could have gone to the World Junior Championships, but he was injured. However, he is playing his second season with HIFK, which is a team in Liga. Again, another professional team. And while, yes, it's common for young players to make those rosters, but they play like super small 
limited minutes, but as they get older, they get more of a bigger role. Lundell's got 15 points in 23 games in Liga. And whether or not you think Liga is good, whether or not you think HIFK is very good or not, I, I don't know enough about either to tell you one way or another. That's still very impressive from any 18-year-old. Uh, he's a center and a left winger. He's got good size. He's got good skill. Skates very fluid. You know, he just does a lot of good things, and he's very smart on the puck. He's a potential option for that four to eight range. Mm -hmm. Another guy is uh, Cole Perfetti of the Saginaw Spirit. Uh, he's got 69 points in 40 games uh, in the OHL. Unfortunately, he's <laughs> whereas his performance, if he was in last year's draft, he would have been easily a top pick out of the OHL. But unfortunately, he's in this this year's class with Byfield and Drysdale, so he may be the third or fourth OHLer picked. Nonetheless, he has been an excellent talent. He did very well at the Linka Gretzky Cup with Team Canada, and he's just got a dynamite game as a forward. He, he basically has a lot of good things going for him at that level. Uh, going going back to Europe, uh, there are two Swedes that you should be very familiar with, Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz. Mm -hmm. uh, Holtz plays for Jurgardens in IF, or I'm sorry, Jurgardens IF in the SHL. He ha arguably has the best shot in the draft. So if you're looking for a shooter, and who knows what happens to Kyle Palmieri in the future. You may want a shooter in the future. Alexander Holtz is the guy you need to look up. Uh, again, like a lot of young European players, he's playing at that top league, but he's not playing a ton. But he does have seven goals in 23 games, which is not nothing for a 17, 18-year-old player. Lucas Raymond is a more, quote-unquote, complete player. Uh, not as big as Holtz, but definitely got more of a more of a mind on the puck, more of a playmaker, but definitely has the offensive skill set to, you know, just produce a ton of points and make a lot of good plays and make you go, man, he's such a good winger. I'm so happy I have him on my team. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a dream scenario would be if the Arizona Coyotes completely tank the second half of the season, they both go high in the draft and uh, the Devils could somehow get both of them. Yeah. That would be fantastic, but I doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> All right, so the last guy I want to bring up here in this list is a guy that you – may be familiar with. Ooh. Well, he's only familiar to you if you've been following the Devils prospects. I can guarantee you the Devils scouts and Castron, uh, uh, he is very familiar with this guy because he is on the same team as Kevin Ball, Mitchell Holscher, uh. and Graham Clark. And I am talking about the Austrian, Marco Rossi. Mm -hmm. Marco Rossi, believe it or not, has more points than Quentin Byfield. In almost as, as many games, he has 74 points in 32 games. Wow. I, know, I know, I know, you don't want to focus just on production, at, especially with junior hockey. But anytime a guy has a point per game rate over two, you need to pay attention. And this guy, I can already hear the criticisms. Ah, he's too small. He's only five foot nine. He's a very strong man at five foot nine. That OHL may not be as rough and tumble as it used to be 30 years ago, but. Guys are trying to knock him off the puck, and they're just not able to do it. This is a dude who plays like he's on fire when he's in his zone. And more importantly than that, Dan, he does it at both ends. He plays penalty kill for the Ottawa 67s. He plays in defensive situations. He plays in those uh, six on six versus, or rather, five on six situations where the other team has their net pulled. This is a guy that does it all for the 67s. He's easily their best player. And that's a team loaded with talent. And more importantly than that, Dan, He's a guy that four guys in the Devils organization could give you intimate details about because they practically play and hang out with the guy almost every day. In almost in some weird way, Dan, I almost want to say Rossi will most likely be the Devils pick just based on the familiarity alone. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it would be a great pick because this dude is a joy to watch. 
an offensive joy to watch. He may not make it as a center in the NHL level. Who cares? Get him on the ice. He'll do good things for you. And that's why I'm very big on forward for this position because I just rang off eight guys out of ten who are forwards who are just going to be guys that could be extra helpful as the Devils try to build their team up. And if you can imagine this, Dan, imagine adding one of these guys to play with Jack Hughes or imagine these guys playing with a Nico Heischer or getting veteran uh, advice from hopefully Blake Coleman in a couple years. Uh, this is an exciting top 10. And that Arizona pick, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that at, you know, after the season when we get the World Under 18 tournament and we start shaking out who could be among those uh, you know, guys between 16 through hopefully 25, uh, right. <laughs> hopefully 25, because that means another pick becomes a second. Um, you know, we'll get more excited about some of those guys. We'll get excited about their fun names and, you know, what they could bring to the table. But those 10 guys I just mentioned, if the Devils come away with any of those guys, be happy because they're going to be great players. All I right. feel confident about it. Yeah, awesome. I I do appreciate you throwing those names out there because now, you know, if, if you're having trouble watching these games out as they continue to just eat L after L, there oh, are yeah. at least a couple other guys you can follow to kind of be like, okay, we have our pick of the litter here in terms of where the Devils are actually going to be picking. Who would fit best with whatever, you know, I think it's easier than ever to take the best player available just because you have no idea what kind of system is going to be implemented in New Jersey, given the turnover in coaching and management. So this is truly a place where they can have the luxury of taking the best player available, no matter what the whole team needs upgrades. Absolutely. And going back to team needs, let's say Blackwood continues to be great and and we're all confident that he's a great culture. Then you don't really need Askarov. Because you have Blackwood. Mm-hmm. If, if you're confident that Damon Severson could be coached up, and I think he can be, then you may not necessarily need a Jamie Drysdale if you're a big believer in Ty Smith. So, and again, if you're a big believer in you know Binghamton and they're turning out better for their forwards and they could be coached up to do better things, and especially if Jesper Bokefist shows some real improvement in his game, then that, that changes the game a little bit. But the point is, is that the Devils can go in a bunch of different directions. And again, you're not going to be unhappy with whoever they pick unless they go completely off the board in their top 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just a little bit of a rundown of what we have yet to see coming up in 2020. And, of course, some breakdown of who's available out there to guide the Devils through this tumultuous time. So that'll bring us to the end of our weekend episode. And, of course, we'll recap the games that we missed this week early on in the next one. But thanks again for listening. I hope you guys had fun today going through a variety of topics here we went all across the board and john thanks again for uh, doing the legwork on the prospects and giving us an um, an idea of who to look out for absolutely all right so that brings us to a close for this week thanks again for listening we'll be back with you next wednesday and just signing off here thanks again and let's go devils go devils